Thank you. I do want to thank Charles and the music team. Sometimes we'll just float them a song on Tuesday afternoon and say, hey, you think you can learn this well enough to lead us in it? And, uh, and they put extra time and effort in to learn that song. And uh, the way you all sang it, I am very excited to sing it after this psalm with you. So if you would uh, join with me, and um, I'd like to pray for us. Because this psalm really can be revolutionary. Uh, it can also be very um, challenging in terms of your own passion, your own longing for God, or, or not having a longing for God. So um, we need the grace of God, not just to understand this, um, but even in the hopes of seeing it begin to materialize in our life uh, in greater and greater measure. So uh, join with me as I pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have uh, provided us with everything pertaining to life and godliness, even to worship as a psalmist in 84. And Father, we, <clears throat> we have succumbed to comfort and entertainment, and our minds have grown soft, our hearts have grown weak. And I would ask in the precious name of Christ, the name that is above every name, Father, that you would grant to us grace to both understand with our minds, but fill our hearts with passion, affections, that we might have a, a strong love uh, for you and for the glory of your Son in a radical dependence on your Spirit, whom we need now to illuminate these truths to our lives and to give us faith to believe and give us grace to walk in light of. And so, Father, would you grant that to us uh, for your glory, but also for our joy. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is incidentally what Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London in the 19th century, said. This is the choicest of the collection, he said, for Psalm 84. He he said that Psalm 23 is is probably the most popular and Psalm 103 is the most joyful uh, Psalm 51, the most plaintive, but Psalm 84 is the most sweet of the psalms of praise. And it really is, it's very <clears throat> simple, I think, to understand, but it's just a picture of a worshiper. It's the picture of one who's, um, who's deeply devoted to God, who is highly affectionate for the presence of God in his life. I mean, it's just a picture of a man caught up in the greatness of God. It's really celebrating the communion that we can have with God. That is what we would call worship in the Bible. And uh, I think many of you, when you read this, you're going to be challenged. Some of you, I think, have weak desires for God. Some of you may struggle with loving the pleasures of the world in greater measure than the promises of God. Or perhaps you, you find worship this engagement with God to be tiresome or tedious or even boring. And uh, that experience of boredom with God is going to be radically different from what you're about to read for a man that is... And a man, you know, we like to think that the greatest worshipers in the church are women. This is a man who is deeply, passionately devoted to God. So turn with me, if you will, and... And let's look at Psalm 84 together. 
It begins to the choir master according to the Ketuf. It's uh, These are instructions, they think, for the leader of music. It's a psalm of the, songs of the sons of Korah. And here's how it begins. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now, uh, many people, notably Charles Spurgeon and, and uh, John Calvin and uh, Martin Luther, think that, in fact, David wrote this psalm, or it was written about David. It does really sound similar to how David offers praise to God. Uh, but, but the superscription here just says the sons of Korah. And that does make sense. The sons of Korah were of the tribe of Levi, they were Levites. They worked in the temple. They were given responsibility to, to, uh, to keep the gate or to maintain the courts of the Lord. They were singers. They were musicians. So it makes sense that a son of Korah might write this. Around the temple, all the time, singing, worshiping, enjoying God. And, and what you see is this man's heart exposed in him saying that my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. I think we're to assume that he's not in Jerusalem that he, in fact, is outside Jerusalem, and he's reflecting back, thinking upon all that he experienced in these courts of God that that he was caught up with, thinking about his experience with God being so great and so passionate and God being so lovely to behold that he is yearning to be back there in those courts with the Lord. Now, remember, at this time... They, um, they would worship in the courts of God. They would come to the precincts around the temple to worship God. Now, remember this. It wasn't always this way. In the beginning, God, when he created Adam and Eve, they enjoyed a perfect fellowship, a lovely fellowship with God. I mean, undistracted joy. But, of course, the result of their sin left them in separation from God. And they lost this intimate fellowship with God. And they were prevented, they were removed from fellowship, and uh, they were prevented from fellowshipping with God at that level. Now, God in mercy continued to relate to his people, but he did it through means of priests and prophets and kings and the temple. This is why the temple is so important in the Old Testament. The temple, excuse me. So the temple was immensely important to the, to the worshiper because that's where God's name was placed. That, that was where the Holy of Holies, God's presence was manifest in the temple. So if you wanted to worship God, 
you had to go to the temple. You had to go to those courts. There was a court of men, there was a court of women. And, and from a distance, you would worship and enjoy God. And that's what he's longing for. It's been so long since he's seen God. It's been so long since he's been in those courts. He's outside Jerusalem, so he doesn't have the same joy, the same connection, the same proximity to God. And so he is yearning for this. And that's why he says in here, listen, it's a spiritual longing, but it has physical ramifications. He says, my soul longs just faints for the courts of the Lord. The word long means you grow pale. You're wearing thin. To faint means you're being consumed. You're running low on power and energy. This is what he is being drawn back to see God. In fact, he begins to exercise some godly, godly envy. If you look in verse 3, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. In other words, he's looking at the birds. He remembers the birds could just fly to and fro. They could have their young. They could nest right in the temple. How lucky are they? How blessed are they? They get to be in God's presence all the time. But not just the birds, but how about the priests? Look in verse 4. He says, blessed are those who are ever praising you. So he's speaking about the nature of these priests who work in the temple day in and day out. How blessed are they? So you see the psalmist's heart here. He wants to be with God. He wants to worship God. He wants to enjoy his presence. But it's not just for those in the temple. So blessed are those people making a pilgrimage to the temple. Look with me in 5, 6, and 7. He says again, blessed. You see the connection between verse 4 and 5. He says, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. What he's speaking about here is he's speaking about people outside of Jerusalem making pilgrimage, that is, to Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying happy are those who get to worship. Happy are those who get to go on the journey. Happy are those who are getting to move to Jerusalem to worship God. Because he had enjoyed such pleasure with God. Now he knows the pleasure of those who are going to travel to God. And he says that they... That blessed are those whose strength is in you. In other words, God's strength is in the heart of those who are making pilgrimage. Those with highways to Zion. In other words, those with desires and longings for God. Highways to Zion. I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to be with God. Those people that are yearning to be with God, they are blessed. Because they have God's strength. And they're going to need it. They'll need it because the highways are not a road of ease. These highways go through the Valley of Baca or the Valley of Tears. Suffering, hardship, difficulties. I mean, to pursue God is no easy task. And so they need God's strength to uphold them. And they get God's strength. And they get strength to strength. They get, they get encouragement. They get grace to move on this journey. And look what happens. When God gives strength to us in the midst of our suffering, then he says this. They go through the Valley of Baca. They go through the Valley of Tears. Let us say they go through the valley of death. They make it a place of springs. This dry and arid place now is flowing with water because God is bringing down these autumn rains, these early, excuse me, spring rains. The early rain covers it with pools. So in other words, the the worshiper who is longing to be with God in the midst of suffering, they're exercising faith, they're trusting in God, they know the end of the journey makes the sufferings worthwhile, God brings down the rains and changes that arid place to a fertile ground where they're satisfied and happy. One Old Testament scholar of the 19th century said it this way. He said, this pilgrim band, rich, that is the caravan and group, the people making the pilgrimage, 
This pilgrim band, rich in hope, forgets the trials and the difficulties of the way. Hope changes the rugged and stony waste into living fountains. Hope sustains them at every stop as they near the end of the journey. The faith, the hope, the joy of the pilgrims make the sandy waste a place of fountains. And then God from heaven will send down the rain of his grace. So that's really the explanation of these first seven verses. It's a picture of the greatness of God and these worshipers coming. And the psalmist saying, I've enjoyed it myself. They are happy. Happy are those who are making pilgrimage, who are moving towards God. They're the happy people, even though they go through the Valley of Baca. Now, I think some of you, when you hear this kind of language, I think in your mind you say, I don't know that I could ever have that kind of intensity. I've never had that kind of intensity for God. I I could never see myself yearning, longing, fainting for God. I just don't see it. Well, I, I I want you to know that I would probably say that while you may not have had it, it isn't that it's not gainable, achievable. We are a very passionate people. I mean, we are. Oh, we are very passionate. I mean, when I, when I see a student get a smartphone, I mean, it, it, you don't realize it, but it actually becomes part of their hand. And, and, and you can't take it out. And, and it, there's, it, there's this automatic reflex that every time they just... I was with a group of students the other day. All of them had it out. I was like, hello, living beings right around you. They, 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 it's just, every, you can be in the middle of a conversation. They need that. Remember what worship is, what longing is, what feigning is for is your mind's dedicated. You're thinking about it. You're considering it. You're engaging it. I mean, look at the Olympics. Think about the nature of the athlete that competes in the Olympics. I mean, that is, that is nothing short of worship. It's longing. The dedication, the time, the effort they put in to be where they are it is just absolutely, I mean, it is passionate. That's what they are. They're passionate about it. But not just that. Look at us in the business world. You know, the, the, the power that we want, the prestige or the money. We think about it. Retirement. Think about your name. If someone throws your name into the bus, how you just get knotted and twisted up over what people might be thinking about you. You're so passionate about what people think about you that it just consumes you that someone might not like you. Or someone might think you're a poor employee. I mean, or, or, or go to the darker side with drugs or alcohol. I mean, that's worship. It is worship. I mean, you're thinking about it. How am I going to get it? How's it going to make me feel? What am I going to do to get it? When I get it, I'm going to enjoy it. It's just the consuming of your mind. Every one of you here is a worshiper. You have passions and desires that some are stronger than others. And what are they? You need to know what they are. You can't say, no, I don't have that kind of intensity. Yes, you do. It may be for leisure. It may be to be left alone. It may just, it could be anything. But you are a passionate worshiper of something. And you need to know what it is. Because both the secularist and the Christian knows that whatever you are passionate about, that is what you'll become. Let me give you a couple quotes. Ralph Waldo Emerson, no Christian here, writes this. That which dominates our imagination and our thoughts will determine our life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we're worshiping. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Or Henry Skugel, let me go back a few hundred years. Even before him, Christian, Puritan, England, back in the 17th century. He who loveth mean and sordid things does thereby become base and vile. 
but a noble and well-placed affection does advance and improve the spirit unto a conformity with the perfections which it loves. So you're going to go one or the other. I mean, if you're going to pursue that which is vile and base, you'll become that. If you pursue that which is perfect, then you'll become that. I mean, you go in the direction that you're pointed. So, if I were to ask you, does this psalm represent your passion for God? Do you have these longings for God? Do you have this fainting for God? And if you don't, then let's just ask ourselves, why not? Why don't we have this? I mean, is it the music that we select in Charles and the music team? Is it my preaching? Can't believe that. Is it the people in this church? Is the place not big enough, not nice enough? Why don't we have these passions? Why don't we have these longings? I I, want to throw out a number of reasons that I think we might not, and I don't mean to imply that you have all of these, but but I would ask you to consider them. Uh, Number one, I would say, I, I think at a minimum, we, we might not have this passion as a psalmist because we've forgotten the gospel. Now, let me explain this. It's going to take me a few minutes. We've forgotten the gospel. Uh, let me explain this, that, that this psalm is set in the context of the Old Testament and the temple. So the temple was a place, as I explained to you, that you had to go because Adam and Eve sinned, separated from the presence of God. The temple becomes the place that we worship. It's a distant worship. You can only go to the court. You could not go to the Holy of Holies. Only the priest one time a year. And he had to go in with the blood of a perfect lamb. And so it's set in that context. Now I want you to realize that in the Old Testament, many of the things we read about, the sacrificial system, the temple, even the Sabbath, they were pointers to the New Testament. They were pointers to Christ. You know, the Sabbath. Now Jesus is our rest. The sacrificial system, we see that, of course, fulfilled in Christ. But so the temple... The temple was God's coming down to dwell among the people. But he wasn't as close as we need him to be. So Jesus coming down now is even closer to us. Here is God in the flesh coming down. Jesus, in fact, said in John 1.14, he says that um, the gospel writer says that he, he dwelt or he tabernacled among us. In other words, the gospel writer John is saying that Jesus has become the tabernacle. Now God moving closer to us. In fact, Jesus Christ said that he was the temple. Remember he said it was, he was accused of saying that he would tear down the temple and build it in three days. And John said he was referring to his body. Jesus is now the temple. When Nathaniel asked Jesus, hey, would you show us the Father? He says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, God in mercy has given us Christ, and Christ has come down and tabernacled among us and dwelt among us. Jesus has brought God closer to us, much closer than the courts could. But then, when, of course, when Jesus Christ died for our sins, this is the gospel. He dies for our sins, buried, raised by the power of God, seated at the right hand, he sent the Spirit. And then the Spirit dwells within the church. And now, guess what Peter calls us? Living stones. We're now part of the temple. We're not just coming to the temple. We are the temple. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Because now the Spirit dwells within us. So what Jesus has done is he's drawn us near to God. We, we are no longer an enemy of God, but we're now our friend. We're not just alienated from God, but now we've been adopted. I mean, Jesus has transformed us from being an enemy of God to now being seated at his table. 
And when you forget the nature and the power of the gospel, God will often seem distant. It's very hard to long for this transcendent God that we can't get our hands around. But then we see Jesus, and Jesus now has come down to dwell among us. He gives us his spirit, and now we can worship God face to face, moving us back to the garden. So if you forget the gospel, if you forget the power of the gospel, God will always seem distant. God will always seem forlorn. If you're not concentrating, thinking, dwelling upon, and rejoicing over what Jesus Christ has done, then definitely God's going to seem distant and far away from you. So don't forget the gospel. Number two, I think that oftentimes our worship languishes because we forget that worship demands much. I mean, look at the language of the psalmist. My soul longs, faints. My heart, my flesh, sing for joy. Or that word means to literally cry out to God. You know, worship demands. It's comprehensive. It's total. I mean, worship is not for the half-hearted. Worship is not for the divided of heart. Worship isn't for the half-committed. I mean, worship will demand much of you. Jesus said, love the Lord with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. That's pretty comprehensive. What do you love with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength? Some of you may, may not have the kids involved in that one. That is a lot of love. Heart, mind, soul, strength. We are an entertained culture. We are a comfortable culture. I mean, if you think... And many of you do, because I think you've done this, that you can, you know, I I read Psalm 84, the first time I read it, I say, as I've said before, I don't know what that means. I've got to read it over and over and over and over again. I probably read this Psalm 30, 40, 50 times before I preach it. it. It's difficult to understand. And if you stay up late on Saturday night, and you come in here, you haven't read the scriptures, it's going to take a circus act. To, entertain, to grab you so that you are engaged in worship. Now, that I did mention a circus act, you could appear. I, I got this off the web actually today at the Cornerstone Church in uh, Madison, Tennessee. They are having, in fact, a circus act. I'd like to read this to you. This is in the church. It's 4th and 5th. It's going to be, it's called Flight Risk. And it's an illustrated sermon with circus performances. So when he's preaching, there's going to be a tightrope walker performing overhead during the service. The invitation, of course, is, would you like to see people fly and flip from the flying trapeze? How about a sermon on risky flying with our circus friends and a gospel message? Well, that would probably be entertaining for you. I mean, to see a tightrope walker behind me? It would be. I may be entertaining. Is that what we need to do to get you, to get us to love to be in God's presence among God's people? I mean, we'll never do that. That's not what you want. It won't satisfy. We need transcendent truth. It's difficult to worship. It demands much of you. You guys, you're reading the text before I'm preaching it. You're praying about it. You're drawing your heart to it. You're drawing it to your heart and your heart to it. I mean, the worship experience that you will have on Sunday morning when you've come fasting and praying, thinking through the Scripture, to just coming off the street and hearing the text, it'll be different. I think that's part of the reason why we find worship to not be the draw and God to not be as satisfying. But not just that. Uh, Another thing we forget is that 
that worship does involve the affections. Worship isn't just understanding cognitively the things of God. Worship isn't a set of theological propositions that you now know in your head, and so you can come to church and sit down, and now I'm going to worship. Worship isn't something just coming here, I'm going to hear truth, and I'm going to be informed of the Scriptures, and that's worship. He says his heart and his flesh, his mind and his heart. That worship always involves the head and the heart. It involves the the light of understanding and the heat of passion. I mean, the two always go together. You know, we've done ourselves a disservice. We often look at the evidence of conversion as a decision. But a decision really doesn't evidence conversion. You know, a a decision, um, decisions are not unessential. They are. Uh, The problem with a decision is they require so little transformation. Anybody can make a decision. You get a set of facts, yeah, I decide that's true. It's in the affections that that the decision is evidenced. It's in the passion, the changed passions, the love, the new desires, the satisfaction in God. Here's what Augustine said when he was converted in, in uh, 386. He writes this. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. This is the heart of the converted man or woman. They have affections for God. Richard Sibbs, another saint in the 17th century, listen to what he writes about the need for affections. And I want you to be thinking now, what kind of affections do you have for God? What kind of love do you have for God? Here's what Sibbs says. He says, affections are lawful, necessary in God's children. All actions in God's worship are esteemed now listen, this is really important, especially for this culture and the evangelical church today, the Christian church, I would say. All actions in God's worship are esteemed according or valued according to the affections that they are done with. We are as we love, not as we know. What is the life of the Christian but the performance of things with courage, delight, and joy? And therefore, the strongest Christians ought to have the strongest affections. For religion does not harden the heart, but it softens it. And regeneration does not take affections away. It restores them, making them sanctified and pure. So the affections are important. Another thing that we forget is that worship is not simply... You know, we make two mistakes in worship. So when you come to worship, you will come, some people come... Uh, to give, to give. I'm going to give. I'm going to give God my time. He's done all the stuff for me this week, and I'm going to come and I'm going to give Him this day, this time, this time of worship. And in a way, it's kind of funny when we think that way, isn't it? It's like my kids that are now grown and out of the house. The two, they come back and they said, "Hey, Dad, you've raised us. You've paid for all these things. You've covered us with protection, and insurance, and the house, and blah blah." Here's a buck. I spent more than a buck. I promise you. I mean, what can we give back to God? Do you really think giving him an hour of your time? Great. Now, now it's even Stephen now, God. I gave you your hour. I mean, do, is that really right? I mean, should we come to give to God like that? I'm just going to give you this hour. Or others of us may come, and we come with more of a consumeristic attitude. What do you have for me? Tom, I hope Tom's on today. I hope the music works. I hope to see my friends. Part of the reason why worship is languishing is because we don't come to get. And what I mean by that 
is we ought to be coming on Sunday morning to get more of God, to find greater satisfaction in God, that we want God. We are hungry for God. We want this transcendent truth about God. One writer expresses it this way. He says, nothing makes God more supreme and more central than when people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money, not prestige, not leisure, not family, not job, not health, sports, toys, or friends, is going to bring satisfaction to their aching hearts besides God. This conviction breeds a people who go hard after God on Sunday morning. He says, nothing keeps God at the center of worship like the biblical conviction that the essence of worship is deep, heartfelt satisfaction in Him, and the conviction that the pursuit of that satisfaction is why we're together. Do you come hungry for God? Like David in Psalm 63. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Do you come for God? Do you come saying, God, I want you to be my joy. I want you to be my satisfaction. Do you come asking God, God, displace from me all the, little, all the little mistresses that I follow around in life. I want you. I want your satisfaction. I want your joy. I want you to be the center of my life. And when we come without wanting God as a satisfaction, we will leave unsatisfied. Our worship will be languishing. We fill ourselves up on stuff all week long. Passions and pleasures that make all these promises, we go after them. And do we come for God? Do we come to get God? In some respects, I want to say, don't even come to bring anything. Don't, don't give anything. Just come to get God. And if you get God, you have everything. Another thing that I, I believe we forget is that this kind of worship is for you. It's not just for the leadership. It's not for the, it's not for the priest. It's not for the monk on the hill in the monastery. It's for all of us. Notice the guy doing this worship. He's a doorkeeper. For goodness sake, he's a butler. He's a butler is what he is. And he's worshiping God with an intensity that just makes me envious. That God seems to move oftentimes to the humble and the low and the menial. He is a butler experiencing God by the mouthful. When many of us are educated, we're polished, and we're sophisticated. And it's like we're sipping, like we're being forced to drink poison. You know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I mean, think about that for a minute. This is for the doorkeepers of the world. Is this not for us? And, and, then, and then last, another reason, this is the sixth and final reason why I think some of our worship languishes, is, is because suffering is given to us to deepen and clarify worship, not dampen it. That, that, that suffering and struggles in life, these valleys of tears, they are given to us as grace, so as to remove from us the temptation to think that we can find joy in this life alone. That, that, that suffering and trials reveal to us the superficial nature of the joy that this world offers. You will never experience God's grace until we experience our weakness. We have to experience weakness to then see God as great. That's what Paul writes when he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When we're feeling strong 
It's us feeling strong. When we're weakened, then we sense God's power. I mean, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, it's served the church for centuries. That, that beautiful book of the Christian life, do you think that was birthed from a life of ease on a bed of feathers? No, it was birthed out of a prison. That's why Samuel Rutherford, another man who spent time in the Tower of London, suffering in the 17th century, he says that God's best wine is kept in the cellar of his afflictions. It, it just it deepens, it clarifies. When you are suffering, when you are facing trial, it, it does have a habit of bringing everything into focus. It may be difficult, but it surely is clarifying. So what do you want, people? People of God, do you want a deepened worship? Do you want a more passionate longing for God? Do you want to have God be that which satisfies you? Because the psalmist shows us in verse 8. Look at what he does. Here's how the psalmist responds to his desire for greater longings. He says, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. He turns to prayer. He, He begins to move by faith to God. And you know that he has faith by the names that he uses of God. Look what he says. The first, O Lord, that word is Yahweh. He's appealing to God on an intimate level. This is the personal name for God. He's going to God saying, we have a relationship. I mean, he's appealing to God by faith. He's not frightful. He's boldly coming before God. He calls him the Lord of hosts. That is the name of God that indicates a sovereignty. God is sovereign over the affairs of angels. He's sovereign over the affairs of men. He's sovereign over the affairs of good kings and wicked kings. And he appeals to him. In his sovereignty. And he also references him as the God of Jacob. What does that mean? Well, Remember now the God of Jacob is he's referencing the covenant. We've talked about this practically through every psalm that has said that that loving kindness, that steadfast love of God. He's appealing to God based upon a covenant that God has made. He's promised with us that he would be faithful to us. Do you remember all the way back in Genesis 22? Remember Abraham split all the animals? And normally it's the weaker king that would go through the animals because if the weaker king didn't keep the conditions of the covenant, then he would be split in two like the animals he's walking between. And so it was a real inducement to obedience. But in the covenant that God made with Abraham, he walked between the animals, binding himself to God being split in two if he wasn't faithful to us. So God has promised to himself and on himself that he would be faithful. So he appeals to God in faith. This is the God who is going to be faithful to us even when we are faithless to him. So he appeals to him and he begins to pray and he wants God to give him the joy that is found in God. But notice in verse 8 that he first, or verse 9, that he prays for the king. Why is he praying for the shield? You know, God, look upon the face of your anointed. But it is the way life goes for the king, so goes for the people. I mean, we want our leaders to do well. And that's the same thing Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, too, to pray for the leaders and the kings above you. Why? Well, when the kings are happy, the people tend to be. When the kings are godly, so tend the people to be. This is why we pray for our leadership in this country. This is why you pray for the leadership in this church. If this leadership in the church is pursuing God, loving God, chasing hard after God, you will bear the fruit of that, and you will enjoy the benefit of it. He prays for the king, but the nature of his prayer is clear. He says this, he wants joy. He wants happiness in God. Look what he says. He says, for 
a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So kind of on a time continuum, one day is better than a thousand elsewhere. Than a thousand at the perfect golf course. A thousand at Tahiti. A thousand anywhere you can think of that sounds great. One day is better than a thousand of those days. You know that you can be bored with everything in this planet. I don't care how beautiful you can have it. I don't care how healthy you can be. I don't care how much money you have. You are designed for more. It will not satisfy you over the long haul. And the thousand days, oftentimes thousand in Scripture, means infinity. One day with God. Give me one day with God. And that will bring me more joy than a thousand of my best days. That is incredible. Not just a time dimension, space dimension. He goes, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. That's what he was. He was son of Korah. I'd rather be a doorkeeper than in the tents of the prosperous and the wealthy and the satisfied. It's a temporal pleasure. Just let me be at the door. I don't even need to go in, God. I just want to look in. I just want to see you. There's so much joy in God. There's so much, there's so much grace and beauty and power and just majesty in God that let me just look at you rather than dwell in those courts. In those tents. That's why. And this is the joy. Now, now you say, well, what could produce so much joy? Well, look in verse 11. The reason that he'd rather be a day in the courts, the reason that he'd rather be a doorkeeper is because it says in verse 11, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. Nowhere in Scripture is God called a sun. God is called the sun here, and it makes sense. The sun, we'd be doomed without it. The sun gives us light, gives us heat, causes our, our world to function as it does. That God gives us everything we need. He's also a shield to us. He's a defender. He's a protector. I mean, to the pilgrim moving to Jerusalem, you don't travel at night. You need the sun, both for direction, but you also need it for protection. You need shield. You need defense. Those robbers that, you know, between town to town when you're traveling through the wasteland and you get jumped upon by robbers, we need a shield. We need a defender. This is what the psalmist is saying. Not just that, but he says this, the Lord bestows favor and honor. If I could just get you to see the nature of God being generous. The word for favor is our word for grace. Honor is glory. He gives grace to us and he gives glory to us. I don't even know what that means. I don't know if it means that the standing before God, that he's going to then confer honor to us. I mean, to think that God would honor us is beyond my ability to explain. But he's giving grace. He's doling out. God is generous. He's kind. This is why it's better to be with God than, than a thousand days elsewhere. This is why it's better to be a doorkeeper than it is to dwell in the tents of the rich and famous. Because God is a sun and a shield. He gives grace and he gives glory. But he also gives this promise that no good thing will I withhold from you. Now, that doesn't mean every event in our life is going to be technically good in and of itself, but the event that God brings is going to bring good to it so that at the end of your life, you'll look back and say, thank you, that was good for me. That was really good for me. It was hard. It was really hard, but it was really good for me. And it helped advance me to yourself. And that's why at the end of the whole psalm, he says, blessed is the man. He's as happy as the man who trusts in God. He's a son, he's a shield, he gives grace, he gives glory. No good thing does you. Who can give you that? Only God can. So, so here you have the, the psalm is in two parts. It, we, we see the longing of this psalmist's heart. And then he turns to prayer for that longing to be filled. And that's why I want to encourage you. I want you to turn to God with me in prayer. I want you to think with me. God, I want you to be the source of my joy and strength in life. Folks, I would encourage you that we would begin, that you would pray 
that God would be that source of satisfaction. That today, this afternoon, you'd sit down and you would just sit yourself on the couch with verse 11 in front of you and you would ask for grace to believe that God is all these things and that he can give you the joy that you so desperately and legitimately want. That you would ask for that. That you would meditate. You would think and stop. What does it mean that God is a son? What does it mean that God is my shield? So what fears in your life is he a shield to? You need favor. You need honor. Now, folks, I don't even mind if your faith is weak right now. I don't even, you say, well, my faith is really flagging. I don't know if I can believe this. That's fine. Just take, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you're going to see things occur. But I'd rather have the object of your faith secure than you worried about the size of your faith. The object of your faith is the issue. That's the nature of God, and that's what you find in verse 11. So let us pray for God to be that. But secondly, let us pray that we would be people who understand we are on a pilgrimage. As a community, as the church, as Christ's covenant, we are on pilgrimage. You know, the Psalm 84 is really a picture of the Christian life. And, and this idea that we are marching towards God, we are. I mean, life in this world is linear. It's not cyclical. So you don't get another swing at it as a pony or a, or a, a donkey or a horse. It's linear. You're gonna, you were born, you're going to die, you're going to face God. And so we are on pilgrimage, and pilgrimages are better when we travel together, when we're encouraging one another. It's dangerous on a pilgrimage. You're going in places you don't know. We need one another. May God give us the strength to love one another in this church. May God give us the strength to see one another as a means of grace, getting us to that final goal. You will not get there alone. The whole plan is designed to move as a church. The church is the manifold wisdom of God. We do not, those folks that want to try to get from here to God, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to do it alone. It's a long road. It's a long road. It's so much better to travel with other redeemed saints. And, and, and then last, the last thing I'd have you pray for is not just to understand God as the psalmist does, understand the value of pilgrimage. I, I want you to pray that a vision of Christ in heaven would be would be, uh, I'm trying to think of a word here, that it would be the object of your devotion. So, so every day you're thinking about the future. Every day you're thinking about what it will be like to see Christ. You know, John Calvin said it's essential. It's essential that you think of the future so that the events of today can be brought into perspective with joy. You have to think about the day of seeing Christ. You want to to dwell upon it, it's going it's to swell your soul with affections. It's going to cause the cancers and the lost jobs and the struggles with marriage and the trouble with kids. It's going to put it in perspective. Thomas Boston was a great Scottish preacher. And, and here's what he wrote about this. He says, when the people of God reach heaven, they will see Jesus Christ, God and man, with their bodily eyes as he will never lay aside the human nature. They will behold that glorious and blessed body which is personally united to the divine nature, exalted above principalities and powers, and every name that is to be named. There we shall see with our eyes that very body, which was born of Mary at Bethlehem, crucified at Jerusalem, between two thieves, that blessed head that was crowned with thorns, the face that was spit upon, the hands and the feet that were nailed to the cross, 
all shining with inconceivable glory. And, and you get that in your mind and you're thinking, that's what I'm going to see. I'm going to see Christ. And if you don't pray for the, to know the character of God, if you're not praying for a greater love for the brethren that we're making a pilgrimage with, and if we're not thinking about the day, then you're going to piddle, you're going to waste, you're going to succumb to the lures and the pleasures of this world, and worship is going to be very dry, and I'll need to get a tightrope walker, and I cannot see Luke doing that right above <laughs> us. I just don't see it. I don't see it. This is weighty. I believe it's transformative. If by faith, even with your flagging faith, you come and just hope in him, he will reveal himself to you in power. So let me pray for you and then we'll get ready for communion. Father, would you grant to us the grace that we need? We want to long for you. We want to faint for you. We want to... We want our heart and our flesh to cry out. And Lord, it doesn't. We are weak in our desires. We are easily distracted. And we are tired in worship. And Father, it's all because we don't know you. We haven't considered you. So Father, would you give us grace, even today, beginning this week, to move among these people who turn with the psalmist and pray. And Father, ask that one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That to be a doorkeeper, we would rather be a servant than to be dwelling with the rich. For you are our sun and our shield. You bestow grace and glory. You will withhold no good thing from us. We need this, Father, even if it involves trials. Father, would you give us faith to believe that you might be ours, that we might be yours, and that our affections and our, our passions will be fueled. That our mind will be filled with the propositional truth and the glory that you have revealed of yourself through the Scriptures. May our minds be filled with it and may it enliven our hearts that we may fall deeply in love with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.